Good morning. Once again, great to worship God together this morning. And I want to further elaborate on Duncan's physics, if I could. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, I could never do that. But thank you. That was a powerful communion. Also, we want to welcome someone who just recently moved here. Uh, Jojo is here, May's husband. So if you could stand up, bro. After many months of being separated because he was in the Philippines, he's finally here, moved in. So I think there's a little bit of a welcome for you after church today. But glad to have you here and uh, good to see you. Welcome to the fellowship. Also this weekend, some, some exciting things happened with the preteens, didn't it? They, uh, they had a sleepover at the Von D's house, I think. Or at least, at least some of the guys did. They went out to Parakai and had some fun out there and, and did all kind of stuff. So I just want to thank the Von D's, the Browns, the McDonald's, because I think they did a great job organizing our preteens to have a great weekend. I'm sure they had a lot of fun. That was awesome. Also, some, some exciting news. Our sister in Christ won a medal this weekend. Uh, so, Chris Lee, you won a medal. That was awesome. It was for jiu-jitsu. Hey, don't mess with that girl. <laughs> So that's awesome. And our brother Hilly's back. He was in Vietnam for at least a month, I think. So good to have you here. Of course, he brought his cousin along well as well. So, so get to know him. So welcome again to church. And, and one of the things that you, you may have in your mind when you come to church is what is actually supposed to happen at church? All of us have grown up with some kind of impression, whether it was negative or whether it was positive. So somebody has some kind of, we all have some expectation of when I come to church, this is supposed to happen. And normally based on that, people have expectations or reasons why they choose churches. In fact, if you go online, you can take quizzes to find out which church is best for you. I don't really suggest that. That's not the best way to pick a church. But, I mean, you get the range of reasons. Most people say, I really want to get a a good kids program, which is important, isn't it? But that's not really the only and the major reason to, to choose going to church, although it's an important one, right? Some people say, man, the singing has just got to move me and stir me and, and excite me and, and music. And, and that's also very awesome. But it's not the main reason, is it? Some, some people often prefer simply location. That's one of the top reasons. If a, close, if a church is close, that's my church. <laughs> it doesn't matter what they teach or how to sing it is, as long as it's close, that's my church. But what happens is it's developed into this idea that I come to church, me, to be entertained. Are you not entertained? Entertain me. Something, something better happen when I come to church that gets me going. Something better excite me or stir me or, or move me. And if so, that's the church for me. And if it doesn't happen, I'll find a church that, that suits that needs. And so our culture has turned it kind of into a marketing scheme where churches try, are trying to figure out constantly what, what are people looking for. A good kids program, let's make a good kids program. Some good singing, let's make good. And so what happens is it becomes this kind of relationship where we're just trying to suit each other's needs. But that's not at all what you find in the Bible. And so if you want to know what should happen at church, you ought to look in the Bible. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So the passage we read will help us understand what ought to happen 
a church. And so if you're looking for a church, these things should be present and, and ought to be present in a New Testament church. And so at the end, we should let the Bible dictate what we look for, not culture, our preferences or opinions, right? So let's, let's pray and read together 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 1, and talk about three things that ought to happen in church according to the scriptures. God, we're grateful to worship you, and we pray that as we look at your scriptures, we allow it to dictate the way we think and ultimately behave. Open our minds, let your spirit fill in the gaps of things we don't understand, whether it happens right here in the moment, or whether it happens as we go away and we reflect on the scriptures, or whether it happens in the fellowship as we're talking with people and we hear other people's understanding of who you are and how you operate in this world, Father. We pray, however it happens, that we understand your word better, follow Jesus more closely. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 2 and then talk about what's going on here in Corinth. Now, just as a qualifier, there's a lot of stuff in this passage that is difficult to understand. So stick, stick with it. But if you want to know more, feel free to go research on your own. Because there's a lot of stuff in here that's quite difficult. But in verse 2, I praise you for remembering me and everything, for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. In verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head, because of the angels. Now, if you really want to get some stuff going, try researching verse 10. That'll keep you up for a few weeks, okay? In verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Amen. And amen. Verse 13. As if this would clarify everything. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Just as I survey the crowd quite quickly. Everybody looks good over on this side all the way up until maybe over here somewhere. I love you, bro. I mean, what, 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 what? I didn't even see this guy in the man bun. Bro, you're a disgrace. Convicted. So convicted this morning. Oh, mercy. That's not at all. This, again, we got, what is he talking about? Verse 15. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. 
If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice. We're no other churches of God. Now, what it boils down to is we simply do not know what was actually happening there in Corinth. And you can come up with the bizarrest theories, but the, the truth is we really don't know, but we can arrive at some certainty. As we continue in verse 17 in the following directives, I have no praise for you. And this is just discouraging. For your meetings do more harm than good. <laughs> Paul comes to Corinth and says, Glad we're here this morning. But, but actually, when you meet together, it's more harmful than good. <laughs> Welcome to church. <laughs> In the first place, verse 18, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? By humiliating those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Like physically, not like they fell asleep in church, but they've died. Verse 31, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further instructions. Wow, what a doozy. So, in chapter 11 until 14, Paul is sorting out stuff that ha that's happening at the church in Corinth. When they come together, it's not doing very much good. It's doing harm. So chapter 11, Paul tackles two issues. Men and women are worshiping, are leading in some, in some sense in the worship, and it's not going down right. So he talks about that. When they take communion, it's not going down right. So he talks about that. And then in chapter 12, everybody has a spiritual gift, and they want to flex their spiritual gifts in the fellowship. And that's not happening right either. So chapters 11 through 14, Paul's really saying, look, here's the way church ought to look when you come together. It's important to know that church in this, in this 
in this sense was way different from what we experience today. In fact, when, when church happened in the New Testament, they came together and they ate a big meal. And then afterwards they took the Lord's Supper. And then someone would give an instruction or a word or a hymn or a psalm or something of that nature. Someone would prophesy and, 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 and they'd sing a hymn. But it wasn't like a structured, okay, let's sit in, let's sing three songs, let's welcome everybody, let's have a communion, let's sing a few more songs, let's sit back down, let's wake it up, let's get back down, let's, let's have some announcements. Okay, it's a great day. But let's come together, commune, have fellowship, and then take the Lord's Supper. But when they come together, there's some things that were supposed to be happening that weren't. And here's those three things we're going to talk about this morning. Point number one is interdependency. Man and woman were supposed to depend on each other. There's also a sifting process that happens when people came to church. And lastly, there was some proclaiming that should happen as well. In the first section, chapter 11, there's interdependency that's called for. But in verses 1 through 16, it, it's kind of like looking through fog to figure out what you're seeing. Because we know some issue was going on, but we don't know exactly what issue was going on. It's something to do with men and women participating in leadership and, and they're praying and prophesying. So praying can be done privately, but prophesying is done publicly. So both men and women were involved somehow in the church leadership when church came together. And somehow what the women were doing didn't fit in either culturally or spiritually or something wasn't right about it. And so Paul says, here's the solution. You should cover your head when you engage in this kind of leadership. So there's a few things we know from this passage for sure. One thing is that both men and women are participating. So that, that's positive right there. All right. Any church that, that emphasizes one over the other and not interdependency, that ought not to be happening in church. In verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. In verse 5, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So both men and women were engaged in the worship service somehow. And although it wasn't quite right, Paul didn't say just bag the whole thing and let the men lead. When women do this, make sure it's done like this. So they're both leading, they're both engaged, and we know that. What we also know is that some women were praying without their heads uncovered. That's specifically what he says. And so the solution, again, was to make sure you do what, what I instruct you to do, not just get rid of it altogether. So we're not really sure of why he told them this or what the whole reason was. Again, there's some really strong theories out there. If you want to know more, we can talk in the fellowship later about that. But most importantly, what he's not saying in this passage is man is more important than woman. Because there is some, there is some history in, in a lot of commentaries and, and sometimes even publicly done in church where verse 7 and verse 8 are emphasized incorrectly and out of context. Or verse 8 specifically. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now if you pluck those two verses you got a lot of trouble coming your way. All right? And that's been taken to say, look, man was created first, therefore we're most important. That's kind of how the logic goes. But that can't be true because what was created before man? Flat out animals. 
So if you want to use that argument, good luck. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, so it's, it's not necessarily that. But what, what is he saying? He, he's saying that um, they need to be treated equally. In verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man. Nor is man independent of woman. A man can say, well, I came first. And a woman can say, well, you wouldn't be around if I wasn't here. <laughs> right? That's kind of what verse 12 says. For as woman came from man, so also man is born a woman. Stop arguing about it. But everything comes from God. But th- there's an issue there where it's not being done properly. But he's, he's also saying, look, there needs to be interdependency in the church. It's not male and then female. It's male and female interdependent. And, we, and a lot of people have criticized Paul that look at the Bible and say, oh, he's a chauvinist. He says, you know, male leadership and male this and male that. But we know he treated women equally. If you read through the book of Acts, one time he preaches to only women. And it's a high standing woman, Lydia, who's actually attracted to his teaching and his message. She wouldn't have been attracted to that if he's downing women. And then he stays with her for a few days. Plus, he stays with Priscilla and Aquila for a long time, working together with them. In this passage, he's saying, hey, don't get rid of the women in the fellowship. Just work together. You're interdependent. That's kind of the the thrust of this passage. Plus, lastly, in Genesis 2, this is a, a great passage that kind of equalizes man and woman. And it may be crooked on the screen or it may be my eyesight. I don't know which one. Hopefully it's the screen. But in Genesis chapter 2, 18, verse 18, this is the creation account where the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. This is a great single brother passage. Say, amen. And say, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now in Hebrew, that word ezer is translated into helper. Often in the Old Testament, that word is used of God helping Israel. That's important because man and woman are supposed to work together. And in the creation account, woman is designed to help man as God helps Israel. That's pretty profound. For instance, in Psalm 33, verse 20, we wait for hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Exact same Hebrew word used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. 18. So when you look at it in this light, although we're not sure what exactly was going on, we know when you come to church, there needs to be interdependency. Man and woman should be equally working together. And there's all kind of illustrations in real life of interdependency, right? Especially in today's age, the U.S. needs China, China needs the U.S., Africa needs India, India needs Africa, and the rest of the world needs New Zealand to know, hey, we're not on that map. Right? That's how it all works. And I don't know why, but it keeps popping up. I looked at this map in Australia's there, but no flat out New Zealand. The world needs us to set things right. There's a great interdependency going on. And, but you, you, you see this in global trade. There's all this kind of interdependence. You see this happen in nature. Luke is going to kindy and they're learning about butterflies and, and milkweeds. And the milkweed plant needs the soil to grow. And then the butterfly needs the milkweed. And we all need it for the oxygen and so on and so forth. But there's interdependency. There's illustrations of this truth in reality, I think, Duncan. <laughs> But spiritually, when we come to church, 
or in our relationships, or in our marriages, it can't be, well, you know how women are. Oh, you know how men are. And that's very, that's very cultural and comical, but in the Lord, in Christ, there is interdependency. And that's a big deal. That's what ought to be happening at church. And so he covers this. And then later he covers how we should be interdependent with the entire body. But there, there is this kind of prevailing thought about all oh, women always overact. All oh, men never listen. Right? And maybe there's truth to those things. But it shouldn't be where we, we, we develop a position where we start to look down. Or we think we're superior. This pastor said there's interdependency. We desperately need each other. Imagine, if you will, church on Sunday morning with only the men. You may say, oh man, that'd be awesome. <laughs> but it wouldn't be awesome after a little bit. Imagine, you know, if we only did the welcome with men, it'd be like, good morning. We're here. Let's get started. All right, you know? But the women bring like the, the family atmosphere. Okay, we can, we can lose, you know, this. They, they connect, right? Or if it was just, you know, men all leading song, be like, Urgh. or if it was all women, be like, ah. it doesn't matter, but there has to be, just imagine that, right? That, that's not what's supposed to happen at church. Imagine in the fellowship if it's just men, just, hmm. Mm. You know, it's like, does it work? There's, there's interdependency. This is all comical, but when you apply this really practically in our marriages, how often do men really let women help them? That's their God-given role. That's what Genesis 2, 18 verse says. And, and likewise, how, how often do, to the, do the women let men help them? But there's this interdependency. But sometimes there's such a polarization. Oh, my wife. Oh, my husband. Oh, my wife. Oh, my husband. And on and on and on. And it's polarized. But in church, it should be interdependent. We should all be working together. And God's community highlights that. That's one thing that ought to be happening in the church. That's very, that's very clear. Number two, there's a sifting that happens. Verse 19 interested me because it's just kind of a, 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 an aside comment that Paul tosses out in verse 19. As he's talking about, so he shifts gears, he deals with the head covering and, and the implications of that. And his solution is still let women participate, but they should cover their heads. By the way, that's, that's not applicable today. We don't know what he's talking about, first of all, so we can't directly apply it. It's culturally bound, so it's not applicable today, all right? Amen. So verse 17, he continues and talks about the Lord's Supper. But then in verse 19, he says, No doubt there ought to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. And then he keeps on talking about the Lord's Supper. And some translations might say divisions. Mine says differences. And then it also says, which of you has God's approval? Which is a Greek word, dokimos. Which means, in the ancient world, when coins were distributed, they didn't have a counterfeit machine to look, is this real or is this genuine? And some guys, when they made their coins, they would shave them down. And they wouldn't be real. And they'd put counterfeit coins into circulation. So they developed a weight system. You could weigh the coin and see, is this coin dokimos? Is it approved? Is it genuine? Is it legit? Can we put it into circulation? They'd weigh it and they'd say, yes. Who made this coin? And they would go to that man and say, this guy is dokimos. He's legit. He puts genuine currency into circulation. But other guys who were 
ah dakimas, not genuine, not approved. They would shave down their coins and put fake money into circulation. Does that all make sense? So when he says there should be differences or divisions among you to show which of you are genuine and which of you aren't. That's an interesting thing because in chapter 1, he says what? There should be no divisions among you. So what is it, Paul? Which one are you talking about? What's going on here? What is the meaning of this passage? And then later on as you read through it, he says, you know, something's happening in your fellowship and God is judging you for it. He's sifting you out. And in verse 32, when we are judged in this way, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. God is sifting out in the moment what's going on in church, the genuine, the dakimas, from the non-genuine. That's kind of radical thought to think about. And it's God's job, it's not ours to come to church and say, hmm... Who's really legit and who's not? That's God's job. All right? But it's happening in here, and Paul says it. Now, this isn't always true because you're sick or weak that you've done something wrong. That's, that's not what he's saying here. But in this case, in Corinth, he makes a judgment and he says in verse 30, because you're not doing this properly, verse 30, that's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have died. Because you're not taking the Lord's Supper properly in a worthy manner. And here's the judgment. God is sifting in the church. And you think, man, that's crazy. But it lines up exactly with what Jesus taught too. It's crazy when you hear Jesus teach in Matthew 10. He says, I didn't come to bring peace, but division among households. A man's mother and brother will be split, father and son, and all this. And then Matthew 13, three chapters later, he says the church is like this this field, and there's weeds, and there's good seeds sown, and they grow up together. And then at the end, God sifts it, the genuine from the non-genuine. That's a scary thing. And consider Judas, who ate the Lord's Supper, With Jesus and the disciples, non-genuine, sifted, judged. And the other 11, man, they they make it. But we have examples of God sifting at church. That's a scary thing. And in the large scheme of things, Paul says, you better be grateful this is happening now and not at the end. That's what he says in verse 30 and 31. You've fallen asleep, but verse 32, better to have it happen now than when it happens for real. God is constantly sifting. And if you've ever used one of these, I never have because don't really sieve much. But this is a sieve. And, you know, if you're mining for gold, if you've ever done that, like at Queenstown or Wanaka, they get sand and, and, and the gold is mixed together. You chuck it in there, you sift it around, and it should eliminate the unwanted from the wanted. So the gold should stay in there and the sand should sift out. That, that's what happens, right? That's a similar process spiritually when people come to church. There's a sifting God doesn't necessarily, well, what do you believe? But it's, are you living what you believe? Because in this, in this verse, they're not practicing the Lord's Supper, which we're going to get to. But, and as a result, they're being sifted. This, this is crazy because this is a warning. 
Just because you rock up to church doesn't mean you're all good. Just because you think I've grown up in church all my life doesn't mean you're good. Just because your parents come to church doesn't mean you're good. Just because you have 15 years under your belt in church doesn't mean you're good. The proof lies in how you behave. Their behavior, he, and Paul says it, you despise the church. Do you despise the church when you come and you act like this? When your behavior looks like this, you're being sifted. And that we're seeing who's genuine and who's not. That's what is happening at church. And so Paul says, and God wants us to say, hey, we we better examine ourselves. When you come to take the Lord's Supper, it's not just a casual thing. It's the meal where you say, hey, am I all good with everybody? Am I treating my brothers and sisters properly? Are my relationships in check? Is everything well? Is there any bitterness? Is there any division in my relationships? Is there any conflict? Is there any pride? Is there any deceit? Is is there anything that that would cause me to be sifted out? When you take the Lord, and it's not meant to, to, to create a deep introspection about how am I doing spiritually, but it's connected to how you are in relation to other people. Not just let me think about my sin, it's let me think about how my relationships are. That's what was not happening in Corinth. And and we'll finally talk about what should be happening in the last point. Proclaiming. Lastly, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 26 says this. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And over and over in this passage, at least five or six times, he'll use this phrase, come together. Right? You come together. Verse 16. And I have, uh, it's, it's meetings translated there, but in your meetings, that's the word come together. And verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together, he's used it there. Verse 20, so then, when you come together. Verse 23, uh, somewhere else it's in there. Anyway, there's over and over where this idea is, it, church, they're coming together. And when they come together, it ought to be a proclamation of Jesus' death. That's what ought to happen. But, and it's supposed to, it's supposed to be like this, this shout to the world, hey, look inside here, we're one new humanity. Man and woman, Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter our culture, race, ethnicity. This is a new humanity. It's supposed to be a proclamation. When we take the Lord's Supper to the world... Something's different going on in here. And we ought to examine ourselves and make sure we're all good and on the same page. That's what ought to happen. But what happened in Corinth is the wealthier people would come first and bring the nice food and indulge, drink a little wine. Because the wealthier people didn't have to work as late. And the people that were less wealthy or poor had to work later. So they'd come late and they'd be hungry. And all the wealthy people would already be kind of nice, fat and happy. And then they would, they would take communion together as if, was, as if it was all good. And Paul says, that's disgusting. You're actually doing more harm than you are good. You're not even taking, you think you're taking the Lord's Supper. That's not what you're doing. That, that's pathetic. And, and he says, that, that's a mockery. And that's why some of you are weak and sick and falling asleep. You're mocking, you despise the church. The very meal that should be proclaiming unity is the very meal that creates division at your church. 
how ironic. And so his solution, he says it, I mean, don't you have homes? Don't, don't you have somewhere you can eat your own meal? Of course you do. Flat out do it there. And when you come to church, wait for your brothers and sisters. And take it together. So imagine that. You turn up to church and all the food's gone. And you say, hey, welcome to church, bro. It's nice and tasty. Like, what in the world is going on? That's what's happening in Corinth. And it should have been a proclamation to the world, but instead it was division. And, and in the ancient world, this is a herald. Also the New Zealand herald. This guy would come out and after a battle had happened, he would say, hey, good news. We're no longer under oppression. Do, 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 do. We're now free. You're no longer slaves. You don't pay taxes anymore. And that's his role as a herald. And he would herald things. It's the same word in the New Testament used for angels. So they come. Do, 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 do. Good news. Jesus is here. You no longer needed to be slaves under sin. No longer under the oppression of darkness. Good news. You can be set free. That was supposed to happen at the Lord's Supper. That's what he says. When you do this, in verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When church comes together and we take communion, it's a, it's a cosmic announcement to the world. Hey, look over here. We're free. Good news, everybody. We're free. We can all be together, man, woman, Jew, Gentile. We're free. Let's blow the trumpets. Let's proclaim Jesus until he comes back. That's what happens when we take the Lord's Supper together. That's awesome. It's this cosmic trumpet blowing to, to, to people throughout the world and the entire cosmos, the Bible says, that, hey, look, everybody, the party has started. We are free. No longer slaves because of the death of Jesus. When you come to church, it's not just a social gathering. I think it has turned into that. Oh, let me put it in my diary. Let me make sure I turn up on time. Let me put it in my schedule. It's just a social gathering where you come together. The Bible says when we come together and take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming freedom to the world. There's something supernatural happens when we come together. It's not like we're sitting in pews looking at each other. We're proclaiming something to this world. I love Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10. Paul goes on to say a lot of things. And he says, I became a servant of the gospel. And I'm the least of the Lord's people. But I'm preaching to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And to make this plain, this idea that's been hidden. God, through, was his, his intent was that through the church, God's intent was through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. When we come together and take the Lord's Supper, it, it's an, an announcement to the spiritual and heavenly realms. The party has started. It's not just a little Sunday morning gathering. This is supernatural, cosmic gathering. The Lord's Supper isn't just a meal. It's not just something that people pass around and we take and then continue. It's the meal. It is the meal that proclaims freedom to a lost world. And therefore, when we come together, we better make sure I need to examine myself and make sure I'm proclaiming, make sure we're proclaiming this message to the rulers and authorities. As we conclude this morning, our culture tells us a lot of things about church, right? Yeah. If, it's, if the music's good, 
if the kids program is good, if the preaching is good, if the whatever is good, that's the church for you. But the Bible says here's what actually ought to happen at church. You should see man and woman working together and a body working together. There needs to be interdependency. You should see some sifting happen. And praise God it happens now and not at the end of time. It will happen at the end of time, but praise God it's happening now to prevent finally being judged. And lastly, when we come to church, it's not a social gathering. It's a cosmic announcement to a lost world. We are free. And let us as a church proclaim this freedom until he returns. Amen. Amen.